Let's rise for the reading of God's word, and then we will uh, get right to it. Uh, when I told uh, Todd that I would be willing to, you know, sub in for him, I told him that what kind of came with one catch, and that is that I would just preach through First Peter. So if you're like, oh, he seems to preach from First Peter a lot, there's a reason for that, because one, I'm writing a book on Peter, and two, it's just, it's just easier for me. So hear the word of the Lord from First Peter. Uh, chapter uh, one, or chapter one, two, verse nine through twelve. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Peter. Thank you for preserving his word that we might learn from it, because it is packed full of gospel truth. Father, I pray for everyone here, that they might hear your words, not mine, and that you might open ears, eyes, hearts, and minds to the truth and joy of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Oh, look at water. Okay. So it is good to be here. I, uh, as Todd mentioned, I was one of the probably 2,000 people that spent a week in Birmingham, Alabama last week, the PCA's General Assembly, and it was uh, made, it was, I'm sorry, it was Faithful Presences, the ministry that we launched back in uh, September. It was kind of our coming out party. We had a big double booth every day because we were Presbyterians. I uh, had to come up with this plan, like, how am I going to get people to sign up for a mailing list, for a ministry they have never heard about. And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I finally came up with a plan. And the plan was that I would give away one $90 bottle of bourbon every day to anybody who put their name on a mailing list for Faithful Presence, and I walked out of General Assembly with 187 names. And, you know, that is wonderful, and I was told by many people that I will be expected to provide this same uh, gift every year, and we'll see about that. But it was important because I wanted to have an opportunity to tell people about Faithful Presence, and I've realized that I've mentioned kind of what I do, but I've never really unpacked it, and that's what I'm going to do this morning, is I'm going to talk to you about the ministry that we formed here in Washington, D.C., that Todd Gwenep is on the board of directors of, he holds me accountable, called Faithful Presence. And here's what it is. Faithful Presence is a ministry in Washington, D.C., equipping servants and leaders working in government to flourish as they participate in Christ's mission of making all things new through offering spiritual, emotional, relational, vocational, ideological, cultural, and missional discipleship. And you're saying to yourself, wow, that's seven things. That's a lot. 
Yeah, you know what? Discipleship is a lot. And if we were to condense that all down, we would say that faithful presence is about providing whole life discipleship for the whole of life in the whole of Washington. And by that we mean not just people on the Hill who, for many ministries, it's kind of the holy grail of Washington, D.C. You want to focus on the Hill where things get done. Most important things in Washington happen on the Hill, and there's 535 people that are congressmen and senators, and they are the most important people. Unless, of course, there's like a national pandemic, and then a small little uh, organization that, you know, just says, cover your mouth when you cough when you go to the doctor's office, called the CDC, suddenly is on TV eight times a day. Or the banking industry collapses and suddenly you need the Treasury Department and the Labor Department to step in. Or there's a housing crisis and you need the Department of Housing and Urban Development to step in. Or there's somebody whose job it is to pick up a phone and get a drone in the air and tell that drone to go somewhere and not come back, if you know what I mean. Those people don't work on the Hill. Those people work in cabinet agencies. And so Faithful Presence, we want to minister to all of those folks. And most of the folks who come to Washington, D.C. to work kind of in downtown Washington, D.C., whether it's on the hill, off the hill, in a policy center or a think tank, almost every single one that I have ever met comes there in part because they want to do good and they want to change the world. They want to have a positive impact. Doesn't matter what party they're affiliated with. Nobody comes to Washington to try to make things worse. You may think that that's what they're doing, but nobody is coming there going, if elected, I promise to make all of your lives worse. No one does that. You may disagree with them politically, but these people are absolutely committed to our nation's flourishing. But here is, here's the rub. Here's the problem. When you take vision and intentions and devotion and mix them with the fact that those people are fragile, right? They're not all powerful. They're finite. They can't do everything. They can't know everything. And they're fallen. They're given to sin. When you mix fragile, finite, and and fallen with vision, intentions, and devotion, you've got a real problem of resiliency, How are you going to stay in a town that is working overtime to basically grind you into nothing and send you packing home? And that's what Faithful Presence is trying to do. We're trying to equip people to flourish as they participate in Christ's mission. We're working to build whole life disciples or resilient disciples. And First Peter is kind of the backbone of what we're doing because I believe in this entire letter, but this specific passage, Peter is unpacking what people in Washington and what people everywhere need to know because everyone, everywhere has been called to participate in Christ's mission of making all things new. Every single person here, even if you're in elementary school, has been called to participate in Christ's mission of making all things new. But that is hard, and it is long, and it requires us to be whole-life disciples. And so I want to look at this passage this morning and unpack a little bit 
And I want to start by asking this question, how does, how does Peter, how is it that Peter, the guy who wants to just, you know, as you track through the life of Peter, you notice a couple things about Peter. One, he is right at least 50% of the time, which is pretty awesome. If he was a baseball player, he'd be instantly in the Hall of Fame. He's right half the time. But the other half of the time, he is spectacularly bad. Right? And what happens in Mark is, is the, 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 the wins and the losses kind of start off small, and through the book of Mark, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger until Peter's just, he's just doubling down on his, look, I'm never, ever going to do, I'm never going to leave you. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and hurt you. Never going to do that. If you had get Rick rolled on your bingo card for this morning, you can check that off. But this is Peter, and Jesus says, no, you actually are. You actually are going to do all the things you just said you weren't going to do. And then Jesus goes to the garden. He tells Peter, hey, listen, I need you to, to stay awake. And how many times does Peter fail? Three. And in my mind, the way I'm working through this in the book is that Peter thinks, oh, this is my failure. Hopefully, I will have a chance to redeem myself before this is all over. And sure enough, the temple guard comes to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out his sword, and he cuts the ear off of Malthus, and I, I picture him kind of looking around going, who's with me? Jesus, did you see that? I'm back. I'm better than ever. Here I am. And Jesus says, Peter, seriously, I don't need this. Like, do you have any idea the legion of angels I can call down at this minute? This is not how this ends. Right now. Put the sword away. Ear is healed. Next thing that happens, Peter denies him three times. And then Jesus dies. And Peter's left with this. I am the failure I've been trying to prove that I am not. I am so insecure, so looking for affirmation, so trying to show off in front of other people. And when it really mattered, I humiliated myself in front of everybody. And now he's gone, and I am here. That's where Peter's left for three days. And then Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep three times, letting Peter know, I'm not done with you. But now that you're at the end of yourself and you say, look, I don't think I really have anything to offer. Jesus says, now we can do some work. You ready? Because this is not about you. It's about me. And that's how Peter comes to write 1 Peter where he says, there is an inheritance for you kept unfading, undefiled forever by Jesus And this is the letter that he writes to people who don't have kind of political agency. There's no one who receives a document in the New Testament that's written to people who have the ability to go to the ballot box and make Israel great again or to build back better. That's not an option for any of these people because they are living under Roman control. And so Peter has to write a letter to them that's going to encourage them for the long run and that is what he does. He encourages them not to revolt, but to live lives of faithful presence. 
And that's what I want to share with you this morning. How do we live lives of faithful presence? Two-point sermon. One, we must put on the identity of the people of God. We must put on the identity of the people of God. Identity is an important thing. We all kind of go through trying to find our own identity. For some of us, when I was in General Assembly last week, some people were easier to identify because of their accent. I was in the deep south. People do not sound there like they sound in Iowa. People say, y'all, y'all know where I'm from? Not once did I guess Nebraska. Because I'm like, clearly, you're not from there. Because you have, your accent is part of your identity. Or maybe it's your school. When I went to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, I'm an Iowa Hawkeye. You know, greatest school in the world if you can get into it. Uh, but I found out that St. Louis was in the South because everybody there was in the SEC. And I learned that in SEC schools, uh, you know, being really great in one sport is an accomplishment. In the Big Ten, we try to be great in all of them. See, look at how bad this is going right now. See, I'm, I'm cutting there. See? So we can use accents, we can use our schools, we can have jerseys for sports teams. For those people who are in the military, it's their rank that identifies them. And for people in the Washington area, and more and more, it's our party affiliation. That's our identity. And why are these things important to our identity? They're important because our identity conveys value, unity, and makes us different. It differentiates us. Accents do it, schools do it, jerseys, rank, and party. And Peter knows this, and so what Peter wants to do is take their identity from wherever it is and ground it in the gospel. And this is why he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So what's happening here is Peter is really kind of becoming the first, shall we say, New Testament DJ. If he was a New Testament DJ, he might be called, you know, DJ Rocky Pete. Because what he's doing here is he's sampling, throughout this entire passage, he is sampling all over the Old Testament. And he's doing it in a very purposeful way that the the Jews who were hearing him, it would have been registering with them. Not that Peter's making this up. He's like, oh no, he's referencing, he's referencing Exodus, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Hosea. He's going all over here and he's doing it with purpose. Because Peter wants these people to know, first of all, that they are valued. They are chosen, they are royal, and they are holy. They are chosen, royal, and holy. And here's what it says in Exodus 19 to the people who've just been rescued out of Egypt, who've been making bricks without straw, who've been slaves under Pharaoh. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. God says to Moses, listen, I need you to start whatever it is you're going to tell these people, because these people are tired, 
They are exhausted. They are confused. They think they're not going to amount to anything. Their parents died in slavery. Their grandparents died in slavery. Their great-grandparents died in slavery. Many of them had children slaughtered at the order of Pharaoh. Here's what you need to tell them. They are chosen. They are royal. And they are holy. And I'm going to take them into the promised land. But you need to tell them that because that's what they need to know is that they have value. And then, after the people go into the promised land, they blow it. They blow it spectacularly. And they go into exile. And God sends them a prophet, the prophet Isaiah, and he tells them, tell the people, hey, by the way, you blew it and you're going into exile. And there's really, it's just going to happen. But here's what you need to know. I'm not done with you. I'm going to come and rescue you. So in Exodus, he says, if you'll obey my commandments, if you'll keep my commandments, this is who you'll be for me. And then the people don't keep the commandments. And then they wonder, do, you, do I even matter to you anymore? Are you done with me? Am I still chosen, royal, and holy? Isaiah 43 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. That's what he tells them after they've blown it spectacularly. Which is exactly what he tells Peter after he's blown it spectacularly. You are chosen, you are royal, you are holy, you are honored, and I love you. In school they have this little thing they say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Raise your hand if you know that's not true. That is not true. Some of the most hurtful things that we do to each other are with words. There are times when I wish I would have been punched in the face instead of having people say some of the things that they've said to me. Maybe you've experienced that same thing, which is why Peter uses words to tell people you are chosen and royal and holy. And it's why we tell people in Washington you are chosen, royal, and holy because God and the gospel can give you an identity that is greater than anything junior high or high school or Washington, D.C. will ever give you. And hear this. If you have terminated a pregnancy, you are chosen, royal, and holy. That decision did not change how God sees you. God would say to you this morning, if, you, if that is something that you have been carrying, you are my treasured possession, you are honored, and I love you. If you have heard anything other than that from the church, that was wrong. I'm just telling you, that was wrong. You are chosen and royal and holy. Identity also brings unity. Look at what he says. He says, I will make you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you are a race, a priesthood, and a nation, and that you are united in it. 
He goes across all the various boundaries, political, geographical, vocational, and he says, you are one people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, which means you guys all have one job. Whatever job you're getting paid for, great. You have one job, and that job is to worship me in all that you do. You are a royal priesthood. Think about that. Your job, whatever it is, royal priesthood, you have business cards. Oh, let me see here, what do you do? Oh, I'm a member of the royal priesthood. And it's not fun. It's, it says it in scripture. This is who we are. Think about how that might apply in Washington, where it's all about division. It's all about what makes me different. No. For my brothers and sisters on the other side of the aisle, we are one nation. We are one priesthood. We are united in Christ. And our identity brings differentiation. We are not like everybody else. Peter is writing to sojourners and exiles. These are people who are not revered. They are not looked up to. They are different. They are weird. They're nerds, maybe. Recent studies say that most people who aren't Christians think that we are irrelevant at best and extreme at worst. If asked what's the biggest problem facing the world today, they would say Christians. Okay, so just keep that in mind. We are different. All of our identity brings us value, it brings us unity, but it also differentiates us. And so again, we go back to this idea of taking visions, intentions, and devotion and mixing them with fragility and finitehood and our, our, the fact that we're fallen. And in Washington, we have people who, because of their identity, come across as belligerent or superior or entitled. But then four years later, they suddenly feel afraid and insecure and anxious Or maybe you experience this in school where you're in the in crowd one day and you wake up the next day and somebody took a vote and you weren't there and now suddenly you're not in the in crowd anymore. If your identity is in these other markers, you are subject at any time to moving back and forth between entitlement and insecurity. And Peter's like, look, life's already hard enough. I want to ground you in the gospel. You are chosen, royal, and holy you, are, you have one priesthood, one nation. This is who you are. This doesn't move. Because life is hard and you need a foundation that doesn't move. And so the call here to put on the identity of the people of God is a call to find our primary identity in Christ. And here's why the gospel matters. Because to find your primary identity in Christ... You do nothing. There is no merit that you bring to that situation. There is no, yeah, but I studied at this place, which is awesome. I was in this office, which is going to look really great on my resume. So you'll absolutely want me on your team, Lord. Again, go back to the Gospels and look at who he picked. Fisher dudes tying nets. He's like, hey, you right there. Follow me. What? I'm pretty good at making nets. This is good news for us. 
This takes the burden off. This is why I say our mission is to equip you to participate in Christ's mission of making all things new because he's the one doing the work. We're just around for the ride of being pink spoons. All of this is based on what you don't do. And secondly, we're called to proclaim the excellencies of God. So first, we put on the identity of the people of God. And secondly, we proclaim the excellencies of God. Here's what it says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And here his, his Old Testament riff continues because this starter verse comes right out of Isaiah 43 where he says, You I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. These people who'd blown it, who went into exile, Yahweh is telling them, Hey, here's what your purpose in life is to declare my praise. Oh, you mean you're not done with us? No. No, 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 no. Just a little, just a little recalibration. But your purpose is to declare my praise. So this is what our purpose is. And here what Peter does is he just basically tells him what he just told him and drives it in deep. He says here, You are a people for my own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness... And into his marvelous light, that's something wonderful. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, that's something wonderful. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, that's something wonderful. What are the excellencies that I should proclaim? All of those things. Proclaim that. Don't proclaim your greatness. Proclaim the fact that I called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are my people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Again, pink spoons. What is it that I can offer you as you encounter me that makes you say, I would like to have some of that? And here Peter is riffing on Deuteronomy... Chapter 7, again, Deuteronomy is a speech that Moses gives to the people before they go into the promised land, right? So this is before they go in. They've been rescued. They've spent time at at the mount. They've wandered in the desert. Now they're going to go in. And here's what uh, the Lord says uh, through Moses. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than all the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. This is what he's telling them, okay, you're going to march in here and here's what I want you to know. God chose you just because he did. You're his people. But the next thing that Peter says comes from the book of Hosea. Hosea is all about the people blowing it spectacularly. And God comes to Hosea and says, I need you to take a wife who is of, shall we say, ill repute. And you're going to have some children. And when you have that baby girl and you're trying to think of names, don't bother because I've already picked one out for you. 
holding that cute little baby. I want you to call her No Mercy. What? Yeah, call her No Mercy. Because that's what I'm going to have about to have towards Israel. I need you to call her No Mercy. And when you have your son and you're looking at his cute face, I got a great name for you. Call your son Not My People. (laughs) Holy cow. You want me to name children No Mercy and Not My People? Yes. Then it says in chapter 2, say this. Say to the brothers, you are my people. And to the sisters, you have received mercy. Because even in this judgment of Hosea, God is saying, I'm not giving up on you. You are my people. You have received mercy. I do love you. And so the way Peter is working this is he's saying, hey, here's something good that God said about us before we blew it. And then he said, and here's something great God said about us after we blew it. Because we're grounded in the gospel. The excellencies of God are not wound up in our success. And his love for us is not taken away in our failure. And in Washington, that's gold. Because Washington runs on success and failure. You are in or you are out. And Peter knows, look, I'm going to ground them in the gospel. He tells them to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't sin. Don't do sinful things. And keep your conduct honorable. Do the right things. Pretty simple. How do we do that? How do we navigate power differentials when we're on the wrong side of it? And our boss is really not nice. We think to ourselves, how can I proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? How can I navigate this power differential in such a way as to be a pink spoon? How can I see my work as worship? When one administration tells me they want me to do this way for the Department of Labor, and the next administration comes in and tells me, yeah, that's the worst way ever, can't believe you did that, that's horrible, throw that all in the garbage and do it a different way. And eight years later, somebody comes in and goes, who told you to do it that way? That way is the worst way in the entire world. Uh, You need to do it a different way. And that happens for 25 years. How do I see my work as worship Is there anything in scripture that says, hey, listen, slaves, when your master tells you to do things you don't want to do and he doesn't treat you well, know this, you're working for the Lord. How is our job, how is our vocations worship? How do we think about economic policy in such a way that when people ask us for our input on free markets or stakeholder capitalism... Or gender issues. How do we answer in such a way that we are offering foretastes of the kingdom of God? How do we navigate culture? Every Saturday, our family goes to downtown Warrenton to the farmer's market. And every Sunday or every Saturday, I see two groups of people very poorly engaging culture. On one side of the street is a group of people with giant signs that say Black Lives Matter and all other things. Study the history, do all those things. On the other side of the street 
Also with the police, so there's police officers now on both sides of the street every Saturday in Warrenton are a bunch of people that say, all lives matter, Warrenton is not racist. And they just chant back and forth at each other, changing nobody's minds. Is there a conversation to be had about race in this country? Absolutely there is. Is that the way that Christ calls us to enter into that conversation with signs yelling at each other? No, it is not. We can do better. We can learn how to engage culture. We can learn how to engage the cultural conversations of the LGBTQI+. Okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I am saying. There is a helpful way to engage this conversation. There is a helpful way now that Dobbs has changed the Roe v. Wade decision. That as much as we are rejoicing in the lives that are saved, we are mindful of the fact that there are women in situations who are making decisions who believe that that is a necessary piece of what they need in their life. And if all we do is scream, if all we do is gloat, that is not a foretaste of the kingdom of God. We can engage that conversation in a more helpful way. I'm going to leave you with this. What we try to do in Washington is something that you can all do, and that is we try to help people understand what we call the four questions of faithful presence. The four questions of faithful presence. And to be able to ask these four questions, we need to be fully formed disciples. We need to have whole life discipleship. Here's the four questions. And you can ask these even if you don't work in Washington. It's totally okay. They're not copyrighted. Question number one. What is good that I should encourage? What is good that I should encourage? Just think, in the middle of your day as you're doing something, is there something about this that's good that I should encourage? Hey, are we against bullying lesbian, gay, and bisexual people in our school? Yes, we're absolutely against that in all forms. That is something good that we should promote. We're against bullying, always. What is broken that should be fixed? What's broken that should be fixed? Christ says, all of creation is broken. Behold, I'm making all things new. What does it mean for us to look at something and say, that's broken, it needs fixed. It needs to be repaired. What is missing, what is missing that needs to be created? What is missing? What is not present that would bless this situation? And what is evil that should be opposed? What is evil that should be not just opposed, but stopped and eliminated? What is good that should be encouraged? What is broken that should be repaired? What is missing that should be created? And what is evil that should be opposed? Now, when you do this, here's what's going to happen. Peter says... Um, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Okay, so here's the good news. If you do this, if you do this right, if you remind people that they are chosen, royal, and holy, 
that they're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, if you keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, right, if you do all of these things, how will the world respond? They will speak against you as evildoers. What? Yes, that's what's going to happen. Peter says it. Do we have any other examples of that? Oh, wait, Jesus. He did everything right. They spoke against him as an evildoer, and they crucified him. So, do not take external feedback as the way that you know whether or not I'm doing what God has called me to do. If everybody in the room says that's the worst idea in the entire world, I can't believe you're bigoted enough to say that. Don't think to yourself, oh my word, I'm bigoted. Think to yourself, my role is to be a pink spoon and people are going to speak against me. The key here is not that they speak against you because you actually are a bigoted jerk. Right? That's a different conversation. This is saying, be the pink spoon so that on the day of judgment they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what it means to live in faithful presence. It means to live as a pink spoon. To ground ourselves in Christ, not ourselves. To find our, de- our identity there and to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Peter. Thank you for his words. Thank you for preserving them. Thank you for offering us an identity that is beyond anything we can imagine. And thank you for giving us reasons to proclaim your excellencies. In Christ's name, amen.